Welcome to the Columbia Church Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We're so excited to share this weekend's message with you from Dr. Jim Balkum, our senior pastor. We hope it encourages you, inspires you, and helps you grow in your faith as a whole life disciple. Now, enjoy the message. Hey, Columbia, I'm learning a lot about coming back from Ezra and Nehemiah, and I look forward to sharing a little more of that with you today. Before I do, let me, uh, let me mention a couple of things. First of all, Next week is a week that you want to be here, and this is one of those you got to be present to win things. So I'm just going to tell you, if you're not here, there's something you're going to miss, and that is that during my sermon time next week, I'm going to introduce something that will play in for us on Labor Day weekend. Labor Day weekend for us, we always call it the Labor Day Initiative. We focus on faith, work, and economics. Over the past uh, couple of years or several years, really, I've interviewed people about their occupations and how they, uh, they serve God in whatever work that they do. We're going to go in a slightly different direction this year, and you are going to be the stars of the show. You're going to help us bless the people who help you. We have a specific plan for that. And so if you're here next week, and you should be here next week, you will receive a packet from me, personally from me. And this is something that you're going to help me with for Labor Day weekend. It's not a hard thing. It's something you can do pretty quickly and pretty easily, but it's going to be a lot of fun and really meaningful for our church. So let me encourage you to be present next week. There is a way you can participate if you're not present, but it'll be more on you than it is on us to equip you to do it if you're not present next week. So you got to be present to win in this case. I hope that you're here. I wonder what questions you ask people when you meet them. You know, what do you say? I've always said the Washington question is, what do you do? You know, and I wonder how we've answered that the last uh, 20 months. Well, I work in my basement, as a matter of fact. What exactly do you do? And, um, And that's, you know, it's an important question. I mean, it does tell me something about you. Uh, Though I do find that half the people who then tell me what they do proceed to tell me they wish they did something else. That's always kind of intriguing. But the, the better question, I think, and especially relevant to where we live, where people come from all over, is where are you from? Do you ask people this question a lot? And do you get asked this question a lot? And my, my question for you is, if you're asked this question, how exactly do you answer it? So I I find that people can answer this question in in lots of ways. They can tell you about their hometown and they can say, you know, this this is where I'm from. So there's a sense of place for them that goes back. It may be a place they'll never return to again, but it exists within their minds and their hearts. It's just etched into them. That's how they'll answer the question. And I can answer that question that way, though. I was born off the coast of North Carolina. I remember most of my childhood in Radford, Virginia, where Radford University is, and that's probably where I would say I was from. And I went to high school somewhere else and to college somewhere else, and I've lived all over the place since then, at least within this tight little region, and so it's a hard question for me to answer. I mean, I've lived in Washington, this region, for 19 years, which is longer by far than I've ever lived anywhere else. How many of you, even if you come from somewhere else, like say Florida, looking at some of my friends, even if that's where you come from, this is where you've been the longest. How many of you would that apply to? That's quite a few. So if that's the case and your life is here, then you're liable to have switched your answer at some point in time. So if you're somewhere else and somebody asks you, 
where are you from? You might say Northern Virginia, Falls Church, Arlington. You probably say D.C. if you're somewhere outside of this area because people don't tend to understand how this region works. So that's probably how you answer. And I, that's how I answer the question now when somebody asks me where I'm from. But this is not always an easy question. Like I'll ask somebody, where are you from? And they'll say often around here, they'll say all over. Do you hear that one? Well, does that literally mean all over? Have you lived on every continent, really? Or do you mean all over, like in a couple of states on this side of the country or maybe on the other end of the country and you came here or from the great nation of Texas or wherever it is that you, yeah, wherever it is you're, by the way, Texans always say they're from Texas. They don't know where they go. This is where they're from. But, and it tells you something too. But that's, uh, that's how do you answer you know, this question, I, I'm from all over. So somebody told me that recently and I said, you're from all over. That's always an intriguing answer. And he said, that's an intriguing answer. And he said, well, I was a military brat. We lived all over the world. I mean, I, I, when you ask me where I'm from, it's hard for me to answer that question. Where have you lived the longest? I said to them, well, I've lived here the longest. Well, I guess you're from here then. I suppose that's the new, the new answer. I have a relative who will go nameless because, you know, I can't tell names and stories too, but he loves to ask wait staff where they're from. And this area really throws him off because, you know, when you're being waited on here, it could be someone that looks any kind of way and could come from anywhere but might not. So we're at a local restaurant and we're, uh, a wait staff person comes and this person's waiting on us and this member of my family says, whereabouts you from? And the person says, here? And he goes, no, no, no. I mean, whereabouts you from? Now, the reason he was answering and that question is that this person didn't look like a lot of the people where this relative is from. And so he said, no, I mean, where about you from? He said, I'm from here. No, I mean, where about you from? He said, I'm from here. This guy's getting really frustrated. He goes, well, where are your people from? He said, my people are from here. The line of questioning goes on and on. The guy then explains, I went to WNL in Arlington. I grew up blocks from where we are right now. My family's lived here for generations. I'm from here. And then he looked at my relative and said, whereabouts you from? (laughs) Interesting question. That's a good question. I, I think it's worth asking if you ask it in the right spirit, in the right vein, where you're from can yield some understanding of a person. And I find that sometimes people will give you more than just a one-word answer. They'll give you sort of a, a paragraph description of who they are and what has shaped them. That's always kind of, kind of interesting. I guess the better question for us, though, is, is where are you now? You know, where has God called you to be? Where are you invested? Where's your place? When we talk about home, we're talking about a sense of place, a sense of of location, yes, but also a sense of missional identity. This is what we're seeking to accomplish. This is who we are. This is what we are about. And asking the question, where are you now, is probably more helpful for followers of Jesus Christ because it implies that God actually knows, knows where he wants us to be and what he wants us to be up to. I've been thinking about this question, where are you and where have you been? Where are you from? Relative to these people who returned from Babylon to Judah. 
And when they returned from Babylon to Judah, you recognize that the first wave of those immigrants, those exiles who were shipped out of the Holy Land and shipped to a foreign land and invited to participate in every part of the society, the first wave of them was 70 years from the point that the first wave returned. And the last wave of them was about 20 years from the point where the first wave returned. So 50 to 70 years, so a long time. And it's long enough that the people who were coming back to Judah were from Babylon. I mean, if you ask them this question, where are you from? If you ask them that question, the answer would legitimately be from Babylon. So the person we're going to talk about today, Ezra, his father was Sarah. Sarah was a priest who went in one of the early waves from Judah to Babylon, and Ezra was born in Babylon. So though the spiritual heritage of his family, the priesthood, shaped this man, and though he may have had some sense of identity with Jerusalem and Judah, he'd never known anything but Babylon. And most of the people he was leading had never known anything but Babylon. It's where they were from. I mean, it was their place, and yet it wasn't because they belonged to a group of people that God had a plan for and God had given a promise to, and in this case, that promise was attached to a place. It was attached to a land, and if you've, if you've been there, you know you've read the 11th book of the Torah. If you've been to the Holy Land, it just gives you a newfound appreciation, a sense of the place of these people. So no matter where they were, And since that time in history, no matter where they've been, those people were always from the land, that place. For Christians, the equivalent of this is saying that no place we live here is really our home, that we are all exiles, we're strangers in a strange land. The Babylon of the world is awkward and strange to us, and when somebody asks us where we're from, there's a sense in which our answer should be eternity or heaven, or however we'd answer that, we're all kind of passing through. And in the meantime, we're where God plans for us to be. Now, talking about the Babylonian exiles coming back to Judah and equating our situation to theirs is, is kind of a rough analogy because we have not been in exile for 50 or 70 years. It's only been 20 months. And yet, remarkably, I find that some of the things that are true for them, the challenges they face in coming home are remarkably similar to some of the challenges that we face in coming home to our church, coming home to church. And the reason for that is, is that human nature has always been human nature, and it doesn't take very long for us to form new habits. It takes about 30 days to form a new habit. This has been sociologically proven. So let's just jump back into Ezra and Nehemiah. Remember, it's one scroll, and this one scroll in the Hebrew Bible talks about the fifth century homecoming of God's people from Babylon to Judah. Its heroes are Zerubbabel, who I nicknamed Bubba, as you know, last week, and Nehemiah and Joshua and Ezra. These are not the people we think of when we think of heroes in the Bible that led their people home from exile. 
this isn't that same Joshua, but these are important characters in the Bible. Some ways I like this story more because it shows the imperfection of leaders. It's, it, it does, I suppose, if you look at Moses, the same is true to some extent, but in this case, the real struggle of these leaders to get people to, to really come home in their minds and their hearts, to really get home. There were waves of immigrants that came back, waves of exiles that returned to Judah and Jerusalem. Some people never came back. Some people never came home. That's going to be the case now too. But those who did, they came in in pockets. They came in groups. They came in waves that had as much to do with their comfort in leaving Babylon as it did with any official order or edict. A lot of people made their decision. It was permissible to go back, but it was hard to go back. And each of these groups had a particular goal, and we'll analyze the second of those today, and each of those faced a particular obstacle. Last week, we studied the first group of people who came back under Zerubbabel and Joshua, and those people's goal, they thought if we just rebuild the temple, everything will be okay, and they made a grave error, as we discovered, because just because you rebuild a sacred space doesn't mean that things are going to go back the way they were. Just because you make things look the same way again doesn't mean the hearts and minds of the people are going to be the same again. And there's no value for a sacred room or a sacred space unless it is filled with people who are faithful, who have made their whole lives sacred. In our case, in the name of Jesus Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And it was a, it was a grave error for them to think they could just build the temple And everything would be right again because people had changed their habits. It wasn't just about the space. So today we get to the second wave and the second story. And we learn once again that coming home just really is not easy. And you need to understand this. Coming home just is not easy. And and there's a reason. There are sociological, human nature reasons for this. There are spiritual reasons for this. It's always hard to come home. And unless we talk honestly and openly about our struggles with going back to something we once knew as an every week discipline, in this case, worship and discipleship and being in our groups, those things, because I'm talking about church, coming home to church. Unless we acknowledge that and talk about it openly, I think we will find it even more difficult. I think the same thing is true in your workspace, by the way. I've been talking to people about going back to work. Some of you never left, but for those of you who did, which is a lot of you, people have told me they're having really mixed emotions. It's shaking them up. People are talking to me about their kids going back to school if their kids were home for any period of time, and they're saying, you know, I couldn't have been more ready for it when we were out. Now I'm I'm struggling with what that means for my family. What does it mean for us to get back into that routine? It's helpful just to talk about these things openly and say, here are my fears. Here are the difficulties. Here are the challenges. Here are the things we face. And it helps me to see a biblical story in which the same things that are true of us were true for them. Now, let's look at the second piece of the story. I'm not reading all of Ezra and Nehemiah. You can. I hope you will. A lot of Ezra and Nehemiah's detail 
like we put this person here and this person there. This person was in charge of this. This person was in charge of that. Here was the plan. Here are the rulers that were in charge. But in between are these little narratives about the people's experience of coming home. And the first of those I read last week, a lot of you talked to me about that and found it as funny as I did. That, uh, this sound of wailing I, 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 you know, and celebration, I called it so, 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 so weeping. And this, this sound that made this cacophony that was heard miles away, well, today we, we find an, an interesting second piece of this story. Now, here's Ezra. Ezra, again, the son of Sarah, who was the last high priest of the old temple and a close relative of Joshua, who we studied last week, who is the first high priest of the new temple, the rebuilt temple. It's priestly family. Both Joshua and Ezra would have been reared in Babylon. Babylon was their home. It's all they knew. And they lived among their people. And there is some curiosity about how the community practiced their faith in Babylon. But some evidence that they didn't so much was difficult to do. They would have still said they were people of God. They believed in God held to some of the principles, but they lost the disciplines and the habits that were associated with their faith. So Ezra comes back, and when he does, he discovers that Joshua and Zerubbabel have faithfully rebuilt the temple, but the people's minds and hearts have not been changed. And Ezra says, well, no wonder, because the center of following God is God's word, not the sacred space but the sacred word, it's the Torah. And so Ezra, he starts a very famous campaign. And we can fill in the blanks of Ezra and Nehemiah with some external histories that we find about what happened in this era and in this time. And Ezra essentially says, we are going to get people back into God's word. We're going to get them back to the Torah. And he sets out on a reform campaign to reintroduce God's law to God's people. And he, he goes all out. He also gets officials that are working with him to actually enforce adherence to the law of the Torah. So it's a full-scale intervention. It's a full-scale reformation. What's happening here is to get God's word back to the center of the life of the people so that those people who fill that temple or who come around that temple in times of sacrifice and worship will be God's faithful people. Ezra believes the key is the word of God. Now, we gotta give him credit because he's right. I mean, the word of God is central to our understanding of who God is. We don't know the ways and the heart of God without the revelation of the word. We don't know Jesus Without the revelation of the word, we say Ezra, in our day and time, if he were here, would be as right today as he was in that day. But it was easier said than done. Let me read this awesome part of this story. I think you're going to like this. I think you're going to like this. In fact, if you're with me on this, sometimes the Bible's humorous when we see ourselves reflected in it. And this one made me chuckle a little. So, Chapter 8, verse 35 of the book of Ezra. I'll read through chapter 9, verse 4. Then the exiles who had returned from captivity, 
They sacrificed burnt offerings to the God of Israel, 12 bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 77 male lambs, and as a sin offering, 12 male goats. It's like, this is a huge barbecue that's happening here. This is enormous. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. Now, what you need to know before I move forward is that this is a season of reestablishment of the Torah as central to life and of the sacrificial system that the Torah dictated. The Torah is the first five books of your Old Testament. We often call it the Pentateuch for that reason. Those first five books, the Mosaic Law, this is the reenact, this is the re establishment, not only of the building of the temple, but of the following of the Torah in the ways of everyday life. But listen to what happens next. They also delivered the king's orders to the royal satraps and to the governors of trans-Euphrates and then gave assistance to the people and to the house of God. In other words, they enforced the Mosaic law. And after these things had been done, the leaders came to me, says Ezra, and they said, The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, who would have been following Ezra's command, if you will, in this reformation process, the people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices, that being pagan worship, like those of the ites. The Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. One of these things doesn't fit. Egyptian, everything else is an ite. They've taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons. And they have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way. The leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. Now, when I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head and my beard, and sat down appalled. I thought it would be helpful to illustrate this today, and so I've asked Chris Clifford to come out and pull out his hair and beard. Chris? Chris? He says he'll do anything I ask him to do. This is a tantrum. Now, when we talk about Israel, we're talking about the people who've come from the northern kingdom. So these are not exactly his people, but I got to tell you something. These are the same people Ezra lived among in Babylon. These are the same people who traveled home with him from Babylon to Jerusalem. And these are the same people that he has been leading and guiding in this reform process for a good bit of time by the time this occurs. So these are his people. He knows these people. He leads these people. He is a part of these people. These are Ezra's people that we're talking about here. And his own leaders, his own people are coming and saying, we got to tell you something. Are you aware that this is happening. Now, hold on, because I'm going to come back to that in a minute. Now then, listen to this, this, is awesome. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel, everyone of this people who trembled at the words of God, they gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. 
Now, I love this next sentence. I never noticed this before. I know I always say this, but I'm always finding stuff in the Bible I never saw before. I constantly. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. Now, what do we have? We got a man pulling out his hair and his beard and tearing his clothes. That's basically a temper tantrum. Uh, parents, tell me if you've seen this before. Okay, I just want to make sure. Now, I know there's no beard in your kid's face, but if there were, we got that. And then we have all of the people coming appalled at themselves because they recognize that their lifestyle is not coincident to, it, it is not It's not following the ways of God's law. They come in repentance. And then Ezra says, so I sat there and sulked for the rest of the evening too. So what do we have? We've got appalled and appalled as the book ends. And we have got in the center this incident where people come repenting. Now, I found this really interesting. I guess it's possible that the story's just kind of told in a shortened way. But, but I started wondering about Ezra, and I became curious about some things that I'd not become curious about before. And I started trying to fill in the blanks and understand what's happening here, because the story's never all there, of course. And what I found is that I wanted to ask Ezra a few questions, okay? So let's do this. When I get to heaven, I'm going to talk to a lot of people in the Bible. Are you? I hope I'm going to see you there. I hope I'm going to be there. I'm going to be there. When I get to heaven, there's some people I want to meet. So Jesus, of course, first on my list. I'd like to meet Paul. I mean, there are a lot of people I want to meet in the Bible. I'd like to meet Mary. I mean, there are a lot of people I want to meet. But Ezra's one of the guys I want to meet now because I want to ask him some questions. Okay? So here, we're going to ask Ezra some questions and see if we get some intervention here. So I want you to read these questions with me. So the first thing we say is, hey, Ezra. You didn't, you didn't help me. <laughs> hey, Ezra. How'd you miss the pickup, dude? Let me get this straight. You lived with these people in Babylon. You knew their families. You understood what their lives were about. These men that you're talking about now, you knew these foreign wives. You were on the trip home with them. It's a group that traveled together. You saw who came home with them. You got home and the whole area was ruined So a few people start to rebuild their houses and it's like when a new house goes up in your neighborhood. In my neighborhood, it's like there's a tear down and a rebuild and you're always curious about that. Debbie and I walk the neighborhood all the time. We'll always try to see who's building what, right? What's Jen Landers building there now? So we try to figure that out. And and you saw these homes built and you knew who these homes belonged to. You've been reforming these people for this period of time but somehow you missed that your key leaders, the priests and the Levites who you're leading, the leaders, even they, were still practicing pagan faith, worshiping foreign gods, and married to, symbolically, these foreign women. 
Now, the foreign women part we can't quite associate with because our lives are different than theirs were and the purity of the race was more important to God's covenant with them than it is to us. But we're not wrong if we make some association to the way that we lead our homes. It doesn't really matter where you come from, each person in your house, but the common mission of the house does matter. And so if we don't center our homes on the word of God and the way of God, then we're, we're like these people. So, you know, it's, it's the spirit circumcision of the heart, as we know, instead of the same legalistic practices of these people. But for them, this represented the breaking of the Torah. It represented breaking faith with God. It represented broken relationship with God. And in this case, what these leaders are saying is they're continuing to practice the same pagan worship in their homes that they are in Babylon. It's different than what they're doing at the temple. So you come to the temple, you do one thing, you go home and you do another. How could Ezra possibly have missed this? Well, I know. Because when you're leading something, it is very tempting to get lost in the surface things and to lose track of the ultimate mission. Ezra's mission was to change the minds and the hearts of people. But his reform was this very visible big thing for which he became known. And he got lost in the big thing and lost sight of what he was doing. Look, this happens in every profession. So you think about your profession, and, and I will tell you this happens no matter what you do. So, you know, let, let's, let's say, for example, that you're a corporate leader. That you lead an organization in which you employ a lot of people, but you lose track of the mission of the organization to employ good people, to give them a living wage, to give them pride in what they do. That's what a company exists to do in part and to serve the client or the customer. That is to provide a good product and you get focused on the profit margin alone. Not that that's not important because you can't exist without it, but you start focusing on the value that you're providing to the stakeholder or the stockholder and that becomes it. That's all that you do and if you do that and lose sight of the real mission of your company, your company is going to become one sick animal and may not exist for very long and the people who work for you are not going to feel loyal And they're not going to be very productive. And they're not going to love your company and what you do. It's easy to lose sight. Or a scientist who starts to get lost in just the joy of discovery and being elevated above their peers or by their peers and forgets that the science they are doing is to benefit humanity somehow, somehow to make a positive difference in other people's lives. And of course, doesn't it seem for every good advance in science, there is something that is tragic and terrible, something that can destroy a lot of people. And it just shows us that you can lose sight of the mission of what you're doing very, very quickly. Or you're a government worker, as a lot of people are in this area, and you lose sight of the fact, or or you're a senator, a House of Representatives member, the President of the United States, or a Vice President, you lose sight of the fact that the policies you're enacting, that the laws you're passing, that your mission is to make the lives of the people you serve better. That's the mission. The mission is not to advance your agenda, no matter which poll you're on. And the mission is not to make yourself famous and it's not to make yourself more electable. The mission is to serve the people. How many of you would say a lot of that's getting lost in our culture today? 
I would say a lot of it is. Same thing. A pastor who starts to focus on the budget and how many fans are in the room loses sight of the fact that the church of Jesus Christ exists to honor the Lord and to change the hearts and the minds of people for good. And if we lose sight of that mission, it doesn't matter how successful we are on the surface. Ezra had lost sight, I think, of the mission of actually changing the lives of people. And he'd started to focus on the surface success of his reform campaign. Secondly, hey, Ezra, what were you focused on? What was it that you were looking at as a sign that you were succeeding? You know, I'll tell you, the greatest sign that we are succeeding as a church would not be how many people come to worship. Now, don't get me wrong, okay? I'm a preacher. The more people are here, the happier I get. Don't get me wrong. And the more people we're reaching, right? The mission of the church is Jesus outlined in the Great Commission. The end of the Gospel of Matthew says, go into all the world and preach the gospel. He says, go and baptize and make disciples. Those are the two things we do. We baptize people, that is, we introduce people to the faith, and then we coach them in the faith. We disciple them in the faith. But the sign that we're doing that well would not be how many people are coming into the building, would it? It would be how you're living when I'm not looking. It would be how you're living in your home, how you comport yourself in your workplace, right? It would be how you relate to your neighbors, wouldn't it? It would be how you do what you do out there. That's the sign of success, not how we look in here. And it's easy for me to lose sight on that. What were you focused on as a sign of success? I told this story to a couple of members of my staff to illustrate something else this week. And when I did, it, it struck me that it fit here. But, you know, I don't know where you're from. At some point, I was from Lynchburg. And when we lived in Lynchburg, little Lynchburg, compared to this area, you know, when something would come to town, we got all excited. You know, do you ever live in a place like that? You know, now something comes, you're like, that's cool. It's another thing. You used to come there. It was a big thing. And I had little kids. And this place called Billy Bob's came to town. Any of you familiar with Billy Bob's? Billy Bob's is like... Chuck E. Cheese and Country Bear Jamboree mixed into one, if you've ever been to Disney World. And so you'd go to Billy, my kids loved it, especially my oldest daughter, Marley. We had her birthdays there a lot of times. And, you know, they had the lousiest pizza on earth, but they had tokens and skee-ball and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, skee-ball's a lot of fun, by the way. And then they had, they had this big round stage in the middle of the place, and, and they had a guy that would walk around dressed up as Billy Bob. Billy Bob was a country bear, and he'd, he'd walk out and talk to people, and then he'd go back, and then all all of a sudden that stage would open once in a while the curtain would go and when the curtain came open there's this big sound I don't remember what the sound was but it would you know when the lights were on the bears were all they're animatronic and they're all they're all you know going like this and Billy Bob started hey it's good to see you you know he starts doing that and he's got this girlfriend girlfriend named Mitzi who was the goofiest thing she was a I'll never forget Mitzi she's a spooky little cheerleader and she she got all excited and everything this is Billy Bob's and so they, and he had a band around him of people who played like jugs and like little boxes, you know, with stuff on them. You know, Country Bear Jam, you know what I'm talking about. So, so the, my daughter would watch for this curtain to open. The show starts, there's about, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes or something of show. 
curtain closes. This happens about every 30 minutes or so. I don't remember how often and you wait for it to happen. So I knew Billy Bob's was going out of business when things started to get run down. You ever go to a place that you like and it's starting to run down and you say to each other, it ain't gonna be here much longer. You can just tell that happened at Billy Bob's because apparently like Liberty students don't like it or something. I don't know. So whatever it is, it's gonna close. I knew it was gonna close down. And the last and final sign was that that curtain broke on the round stage and so they just took it down. And so when you walked into the room, Billy Bob's going like this. And Mitzi's going like this. And these unanimated characters, when you see them that way, they're spooky. They're scary. They're actually kind of spooky. And then all of a sudden the show starts and there's no curtain. So there's no illusion. So what happens is immediately they wake up and they start doing their thing. And that's goofy too. It's jarring. And then you finish the show and the lights go off and they go, and they die again. And so this erases the illusion that Billy Bob and Mitzi are back there sharing a cup of coffee between sets. And what I realize is that The way we live our life in Christ is often a lot like that. We come to worship and we come alive in Christ and then we die and we go off into a world that doesn't look anything like the commitment we've made because it is easier to get into the word of God than it is to get the word of God into people. And what happens is we we are not established in this discipline of becoming the people of God. Because see, the way it works is not that this is supposed to be an interruption to life, but the discipline of the worship of God is supposed to shape our lives so that the rest of life becomes more and more like who we are when we honor the one true living God. And people look at us. This is one of the reasons we see so few people coming to Christ, because they look at us between sets and we look dead. There's no life in our fellowship of Jesus Christ. What should we be focused on? A life of discipline that honors Jesus Christ. Hey, Ezra. You've fallen asleep on me, Billy Bob. Why are you so upset? I think he was upset because he was embarrassed. People he had taught the word of God to because he was supposed to be the expert started coming to him and saying to him, don't you think that we're inconsistent with this word that you're teaching right here? And that happens from time to time. Somebody will come and say, Dr. J, don't you think that what we're doing here is inconsistent with what we're preaching and teaching with what we find in the word of God? And the right answer to that is always, let's talk about that. Let's think about that. You might be on to something. Now, he should have been celebrating that people actually understood the word of God, but that's not what he did. He gets upset. He rips out his hair. He rips out his beard. He throws a tantrum. So what are you so upset about? And it is his reaction that gives me the cue that I'm right about what's happening here. Because people who get this upset are releasing suppressed anger about people who are not cooperating with what they want in life. And finally, hey, Ezra, and wasn't it awesome that your people got it and trembled? Look, this story, if it didn't have the very last sentence, to me would be an awesome story. Let's say I preach on something 
Let's say it's marriage, that lifelong relationship with one man and one woman. And I preach on that some Sunday. And afterwards, a couple come to me and they say to me, we were really convicted by what we heard and we want to change the way we relate. We want to honor God in our homes. What should I do? Yes! Yes! You win, God. They got it. I could preach on anything, and if people came to me and said, we want to reorient our lives based on what we're reading from the Word of God and what you're preaching, if they do that, I should celebrate, right? So listen to what happens. All of these people who've been breaking God's commands, God's Torah, they come to him trembling, and they gather around him, trembling, and they want to repent, And Ezra should have said, this is awesome. This is exactly what I was trying to accomplish by getting you guys into the word of God. This is exactly it. But what does he do instead? So I sulked for the rest of the night. I was appalled for the rest of the evening. Why was he appalled? Because he thought the reform was working. And he discovered that the minds and the hearts of the people were not actually being changed. And when he discovered that, he felt like a failure. And that appalled him. Does this make sense? When you look at this passage, you can kind of see what's happening. Now, I've called this exhilarated. That means still exiled. I made that word up. Yes, I know there's not an H there. It's not supposed to be. It's way easier to get people into the Bible than it is to get God's word into the people. Lesson number one. One thing the pandemic has taught me is that this is true. I would love to have believed that we were so effective in being discipled in the word of God together, that when the pandemic came, we would shine like the brightest stars in the sky. Even if we couldn't be at church together, even if our small groups were on Zoom, whatever the case would happen. But instead, what happened is we tended to drop off a little bit, didn't we? And that's because it's way easier to get people into the Bible than it is to get God's word into the people. I often hear well-meaning Christians say something that sounds like this. And you won't believe how often I hear this. They will say, we just need to get people into the word. But what they're often missing is that just getting people to read the word of God will not change their lives unless they decide to allow the word of God to get into them. And it takes discipleship and perseverance and patience to make that happen together, doesn't it? You know it. I do too. It's hard. Easier said than done. Right? It's just hard to actually live out that word every minute of your life, to, be, to have a grit, a perseverance in your fellowship of Jesus Christ. People get knocked off the horse by the simplest of things, you know, little tiny nothing things in the life of the church, and people get all blistered and upset. I'm like, really? This is all it takes? This is it? Man. Secondly, it's way easier to get people out of exile than it is to get the exile out of the people. And this is what we have to understand. 
we may be coming back, but we're not coming back to exactly the same church we left, and we're not the same people we were when we left. And for that reason, we're still bringing some of the fear and trepidation and anger, anger, and all sorts of other emotions back with us from exile, and they're looking for places to land, and they're finding them in strange places. You know, I love the way the author of Hebrews says this. He says, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Now, let me ask you based on that passage, and I've taught this before, so you should know it by now. What is the habit? The habit is not worshiping. What is the opposite of a bad habit? Don't say a good habit. The opposite of a bad habit is a discipline. The opposite of a bad habit is not a good habit. It is a discipline because it is discipline that forms good habits. What's happened here is that we've just gotten into the habit of living a Babylonian lifestyle. Or at least a lot of us have. And it's hard to discipline ourselves to get back in the game. Because it's a different game. But at the end of the day, we've got to recognize that this is true. I I want to ask you, what habits did you form during the pandemic that you'd like to keep? My son-in-law was at my house last night, and he said, if you didn't use this last year and a half as a personal improvement opportunity, you missed the opportunity. And I told him, that makes me feel really bad about the last year and a half because I don't think I did. He said, well, I did. But let me ask you this. Are you happier now? Are you? One or two of you might say yes. The vast majority of you, I've talked to you enough to know you're saying something's amiss, something's off, doesn't feel right. So the question is, what disciplines did we lose? Like worship, Bible study, meeting with a group of other Christians, and other disciplines too. What did we lose that we have to re-engage in order to be the people that God is calling us to be. So not giving up meeting together, the author of Hebrews says, as some are in the habit of doing. The habit is not meeting. The habit is not worshiping. The habit is not disciplining our lives. But encouraging one another. Encouraging one another to get things going with Christ. You know, I think this is actually a good opportunity. You know this screen? If you don't know this screen, you know this one. Am I right? It's either this one or it's this one. That's restart. This is not just a regathering of God's people. We're not just building the temple and and believing that because we've done the surface things, it's going to happen. This is an opportunity to re-engage the mission of the church of Jesus Christ, to seek and to save the lost, to baptize and disciple 
and change the minds and the hearts of human beings because there were some pre-existing conditions in the church of Jesus Christ in North America, as I mentioned last week, that made us vulnerable to the pandemic. The pandemic offers us an opportunity not just to reopen and not just to regather, but actually to restart and ask ourselves the question, if we were starting a church today to reach the people around us, your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, what would we do? And what about that? is inconsistent with what we have done for lo these many years. And let me tell you, friends, that's painful because a lot of us just want to get right back to where we were. I can tell you that's impossible and it's not going to happen because you can take the people out of exile, but you can't get the exile out of the people because it is easier to get people into the Word of God than it is to get the Word of God into the people. Because of those things, the reality is we can't just go back, right back to where we were. And it's going to take patience and perseverance. You know, I see people get wound up on the smallest things, 45 minutes. Those of you who know what I'm talking about know what I'm talking about. Really? First of all, we're going to get that right. We'll figure it out. But what we were doing before this was nuts, insane, and not working. We were doing worship services directly back to back and people like Natalie and Brian Kent were getting burned out because they did not have time to adjust and adapt and to get into place and none of you were fellowshipping with each other except to leave your worship service and go directly to your little group of people so we didn't have inter- any intermingling between people who are across generations in different places in life and what was happening is the community of the church was paying a price, the staff and the volunteers are paying a price. Our children's leaders were getting burned out all over the place. They're constantly late, running in late because they got to manage all their stuff. What we were doing was ridiculous. That's a simple example of saying when you restart, figure out how to get it right. I don't mean we've got the right solution quite yet. I mean it's going to take us a little work to get this good solution, but we'll get it right, right? Just say right. We'll get it right. We'll figure out what works best for everybody. Leaders and people who come and guests, we'll figure it out. Listen, friends, this is an opportunity. The only question we should ask ourselves as we restart is, how can we reach more people with the gospel of Jesus Christ? And how can we disciple them and each other to live our lives completely centered on the word and the way of God. It's an opportunity. If we can see it as one. And that will require us not focusing on what's been lost, but what is being found. Not just to focus on how things have been shaken up, but how things are being settled down. And those people who came home from Babylon, they showed us nothing if not this. That is really just not that easy to do. Father, we desire for your church to be on mission, to seek and to save the lost, to baptize and disciple. We want to be a part of that. It is the front line of what you're doing in the world. And so as we restart, Lord, help us to clear everything out that ever was or is in the way of our being your completely devoted people. And give us peace, Lord, that passes understanding, patience, perseverance, 
and most of all, love as we come home together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, Columbia, I love you. To those of you out there, I can't wait to see you soon in here. It's so wonderful to see you. All of you go and ignite passion for Jesus Christ from Metro Washington to the world. Have a blessed week, and I'll see you soon. Hey, thanks again for listening. If you live in the Metro D.C. or Northern Virginia area, we would love to worship with you at one of our weekend gatherings. For directions, service times, and information about all the incredible things happening at Columbia, go to columbiabaptist.org. That's columbiabaptist.org.